Hi, I'm Rail Bricker, and I'll be one of your hosts for the Business Excellence Podcast. Hi, and I'm Lindsay Adams. I'm the co-host. And together, we're going to be talking about what makes up business excellence. And we believe that you can never be perfect. All you can be is excellent. And in our businesses and in our lives, we want to achieve excellence. And that's why this is the Business Excellence Podcast. Welcome back to part two in conversation with Niels Brabant, leadership expert about leadership and business excellence. We left off the last episode talking about productivity and managing staff remotely from working from home. So one aspect which I frequently saw in the past was when something, let's just say you have an IT project, when it goes wrong, they blame the administrator on site and say, that was your accountability. No, it was not. It was his or her responsibility, not accountability. The accountability is with the leader of the company or the leader of the department because you chose that person to hire. You chose to give that job to that person. And when everything goes right, by the way, leaders normally are there immediately to get the appraisal and to be celebrated for having done everything right. So accountability can never be delegated. You can only delegate tasks and responsibility. Let let your teams work independently. Give them proper briefings, but then allow them to do their work and most teams thrive when you give them more flexibility i just give you an example when you look into teams at uh, for example monzo bank monzo bank is a bank which just recently opened a couple of years ago and i think it is fair to say that the city of london is rather competitive so when you open there as a newly as a newly opened bank and suddenly when when work from home started they were doing brilliantly well because their leaders are well-trained, it's a very diverse environment, a very modern environment. But as long as you have these very traditional organizations where you have a daily pointless meeting and you go through one checklist after another, have you done that? Have you done that? Will you do that by tomorrow? What do you do for the next eight hours? When you deliver that kind of leadership, you simply waste 10 to 15% of your productivity on just performing pointless meetings which have nothing else in mind than just being a control person. And as Lindsay said, said correctly, most, organization, most organizations thrive. And Microsoft Japan, and in Japan, the, the work-from-home culture w- w- was not really there. Um, I think Microsoft in Japan had a 40% thrive on, on, on their productivity. So when you allow people to work from home more flexibly and with more freedom and more trust, People will thrive as long as they have good equipment and the trust from the management. But as long as you stick to, and that is something which I saw very quickly, people were not asking me what about the methods to make people work from home properly. They say, how can I track working hours? How can I track what they do on corporate computers? How can I track what they do on the internet? Update. It's none of your business because they do that stuff from their, from their office computers anyway. When you look for example, when, when people are looking for a new job, when do they look for a new job? Well, during business hours from the computer of their employers. <laughs> and they do it for a reason. And the reason is not because they are so fascinated with your leadership approach. Surprise, surprise. So you have to give them more flexibility. And I think the main paradigm shift for many people will be move away from simply telling them your job is to work 40, 45, 37.5, whatever hours per week. Your job is to perform certain tasks to get your projects done in time. 
And by the way, when they're finished earlier, because I know that's a question that frequently comes up. So what, what happens when they're finished earlier? When they're finished earlier, they've done very well and they deserve to finish their work earlier. Full stop. Full stop. So you mentioned earlier about, you know, people sitting at their desk between the prescribed hours. And I've done a lot of work in Asia and yeah. there's a lot of presenteeism that happens there. You know, it's very, you can't leave your desk until the boss goes home. Uh, whether you've got anything to do or not, doesn't matter. You've got to be at your desk. Now, is presenteeism dead now, do you think? Um well, and you know, that's an international expert on, on absentism, presentism, and, and work culture, Paul Tawal from the Netherlands, who you also know, I think, very well. And um, presentism isn't dead, unfortunately, because you cannot simply say, we now have a work-from-home culture, so please just stop living your own culture. I know that many people do that, and especially bad international managers just show up in a different country and tell them, look, my culture is better than yours. As you can hear by the charming accent, you might have realized I am German and the German working culture is very different from other working cultures, especially even when you travel within Europe, the British working culture is very different from the German one, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, presentism will still be there. So I'll just give you an example. One of my friends is working for a major newspaper in the UK, and he says he always keeps his notebook open. And in Microsoft Outlook, there is a function where you can send an email at a delayed time. So you can click send, but the email goes out an hour or two later. And he says every email he has goes out normally from, from very early in the morning until 10, 11 p.m. And I asked him, why do you do that? And he says, because my boss always tells me that I'm working so unbelievably hard and that's what he wants to see. <laughs> so once more, once more, the problem is that bad leadership leads to people tricking the system. And by the way, don't blame the people. When you tell people, oh, I laugh when you work until 11 p.m. and I laugh when you're in the office at 5 a.m. in the morning, when there is no point in that, people will always find a way to trick the system. But the problem is bad leadership. It's not the people. They simply stick to a pointless and completely arbitrary system. And they will always find a loophole in any system. Focus on getting the job done. And when someone leaves earlier, when the job is done, that is their right to leave because you pay them to get certain tasks done. When the work is done, they have time off. So I so thanks, Niels. I sit on a on, on a board here and, and two of the people on the board with me, one is a partner in a major accounting firm slash consulting firm, and the other is a partner in a in a large independent law firm. Mm-hmm. And both of them, when the pandemic hit, we, we, we shifted our board meetings to a Zoom environment as well. Yeah. And um, both of them said to me what their approach was, and it was quite interesting, because the one is a large international firm and the one is a large independent firm. Mm-hmm. They both said to their staff, you have to bill clients seven hours a day. We don't yeah. care whether you bill from three in the morning until lunchtime or, you know, you want to start work at 11 in the morning and build till 10 o'clock at night. As yeah. long as you are being productive and their measure of productivity was, was, was the way they would in the normal office environment. And I thought that was quite a nice, flexible approach to the work from home. I mean, have you seen lots of companies adopting that kind of approach? 
Um, when you have international consulting and especially law firm companies, of course, the, the amount of billable hours is normally the key KPI they lead their, their company with. Um, that is, quite frankly, a debatable approach for one reason. We now, and it happens, I think, in a couple of days or weeks in Germany, we now have the first large conference about putting up a code of ethics How, how, much can, how much are you able to bill and is leading a company by the amount of billed hours the right way? I can understand it e e economically. And as a training and consultancy company, of course, I also have the KPIs of billed hours, billed days per year, month, quarter, et cetera, et cetera. The main problem is when we look into the facts, and this is what I have from Europe right now, the amount of companies suing consultancy and law firm companies for overcharging quadrupled within the last three years. So companies realize when they check the bills that somehow the, the amount of hours billed doesn't really reflect on the services they got. So how did that happen? And of course, you can now say maybe there are some bad sheep, there are some bad apples in the basket, but the usual chumba-wumba we hear when they try to pull up uh, with, let's say, cheap excuses. This happens because they, they tell their people, Build seven hours per day. I don't care what you bill. I don't care how you bill. I don't care who you bill. As soon as I see seven hours per day is billed, the world is fine for me. That leads to a certain problem. There might be days where you have 10 hours to bill or 12 or 14. And there might be days where you have two hours to bill or three or zero. And as soon as you force people to build seven hours to whatever client you, you can have somewhere, you, you might you most likely will have an issue that some people um, who didn't really perform or some people who had a very challenging project where they had lots of prep work, which they couldn't charge to the client, they will make stuff up. So leading your company by the amount of billable hours, I can completely understand it from an economical point of view. And I know this is a huge change to the consultancy world. This is a huge change to the law firm world. Uh, but all the law firm companies know it is approaching. The amount of billable hours um, is a KPI which you can take, but you must be sure that your people have the right clients, that they have communication means to reach out to the clients, that the projects are a fit to billing that way. And of course, that the clients are aware that these hours are billed and they do not only see it by a monthly or quarterly bill, which most likely they will challenge when they don't really see the work behind it. So, yes, it is an approach, and I can understand their point of view. Do I think that this approach is sustainable for the next 10 years? Most likely not. So, in terms of KPIs, as, as leaders, as, as emerging leaders, and I know Lindsay and I have been looking at some tools that measure non-financial KPIs that are actually leading indicators of company performance because effectively billable hours or, or, or numerical figures or financial figures are lagging indicators. So yeah. how, is there going to be a shift to managing on, on non-financial KPIs? And um, you know, where do you think that's going? Um, so first, I think, yes, that th there will be more management uh, on non-financial KPIs. It was the Harvard Business Review who seven months, seven or eight months ago, they had a whole issue where on the main cover of the issue, you saw the words, do metrics undermine your business? 
our leaders mix up numbers with strategy because numbers are not strategy. Numbers are something you can manage to see where you are, but numbers are not strategy. Also, measuring as or trying to measure aspects which are not hard numbers isn't, isn't even really new. When you look into modern approaches, for example, ITIL, I think you called it in, in Australia, or ITIL, as some people say, ITIL, IT Infrastructure Library. I'm an ITIL V2 Service Manager, V3 Expert. Now the V4 version is on the market. And KPIs, hard numbers, is nothing new. People measure that all the time, but ITIL or ITIL, depending how you like to pronounce it, they started to call people out for only doing that, I think four or five years ago. And they said, besides the KPIs, you need CSFs, critical success factors. And critical success factors are soft factors, which are really hard to measure. How do you want to measure client satisfaction? I mean, you can, of course, make phone calls and tell them on a scale from one to 10, but let's face it, these phone calls often end up with people just saying, okay, when I say nine or 10, they seem to be reasonably quick with the interview. As soon as I say eight or less, they say, oh, we have a couple of additional questions about that aspect. So you always get between nine and 10 as an answer, just because people want to get you off the phone. So uh, what about uh, motivation of your um, employee? Very hard, very hard to measure that. You can, of course, do interviews and talk to people. That's always a soft factor. Trying to measure soft factor is an understandable approach, especially in times of compliance. And I can completely understand people who say, I'm sitting here in my department and I have to make it measurable. So they suddenly start to make up their own KPIs where they say productivity per day divided by something else multiplied by something completely different. And then they come to a number which should be between 3.7 and 5.1. And the first thing em employees figure out is how to manipulate that number. And I just give you one example for that. I had a workshop for two days with engineers. And I uh, talked about that in my own podcast be, uh, before, because I heard during the coffee break, people were standing outside saying, oh, by the way, did, did, did you book number 17? No, no, I, I did an 11, 12. And someone said, no, no, you need to do A3 slash 4. And I was just getting out of the room and say, may I ask what's going on here? And they said, oh, yeah, we have the PI, which is the newly implemented productivity index. <laughs> and I said, what is the productivity index? And they said, well, depending on where I book the seminar, if it's project work or personal development, that, that influences how my PI looks like. But the PI, the productivity index, shouldn't be too low because then we're not productive enough. But if it's too high, we burn out, at least according to the controlling department. So I always measure to be in, in between the boundaries they set me. So people are talking about productivity while at the same time your employees spend time just to figure out how they satisfy your completely made up numbers, which is, again, another sign for bad leadership when you celebrate yourself for a made up number with no scientific background just because you think it's a good idea. And I asked them about the productivity index, and that is something they, of course, said off the records. They said one of the aspects which significantly influences the department's productivity index is how often people are away, how often are people not able to work. And that led to the fact that people who have children at home, or especially women, were not recognized or not part of projects because project manager said, well, maybe one of them gets pregnant. And when she becomes pregnant, I can't get the PI to where it should be, which is a horrible thing to say. And by the way, it's illegal to act that way. But as long as you 
don't think these numbers through properly and have solid, really solid scientific evidence, you shouldn't be too surprised. And leading by numbers is something which major IT companies did, which major law firms did, which major consultancy companies did. Leading by numbers alone. I don't want to say numbers are bad. Numbers are tremendously helpful. I am German. When we want to have fun, we open Microsoft Excel because we love numbers. That's just how we are. <laughs> just love to have a good spreadsheet on a Friday evening. So, um, <laughs> so, But leading by numbers alone is not what is going to make your business thrive. Um, it will go the other way. You will have a massive debt to the employer's brand, your reputation will go down. Due to the lack of reputation, you suddenly don't get the right talent. Then you have to spend more time and effort on marketing, on recruiting, and suddenly someone will come up and say, why do we suddenly spend so much money on employer branding and advertising and job ads, et cetera, et cetera? Well, because bad leadership harmed the employer's brand in the first place. So, so Niels, I want to, you know, move to wrap up, but I'm going to ask you a leading question. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm known around the world as the relationships guy, and I believe that relationships underpin everything. And so it sounds to me you're really just confirming my, my point of view of the world is that numbers don't necessarily count, but relationships do. What are your thoughts on that? Um, it's exactly like that. Maybe you remember when we talked about the certain kind of sales trainers who now say you still have to build the, the, the clients a certain amount of days and you have to push them towards buying a certain package. And your very polite answer to, to my question of what you think about this approach, you said, well, good luck for them, which I think is the polite Australian version of something completely different. And <laughs> you're exactly right. Maintaining great relationships is very important. And when you see how poorly managed, especially remote locations are, it's because sometimes people uh, and leading managers uh, or, or executives, senior leaders, uh, put certain services in certain places, not because they want to give the region a chance or they want to make the whole company thrive uh, to go in that direction as well or on that region. Many senior leaders put certain services in certain places because payment is low and they exploit that situation. You must have a great relationship to all different aspects of your business. Even if you outsource them, you cannot say, oh, it's an outsourced partner, none of our business. It is your business because these people are the face to the customer's often, for example, call center agents. The key to being successful, not only in a world where we work together in a corporate office, but also and especially in a world where we work together remotely, is maintaining a great relationship. Niels, thank you. I, I, I noticed that well, I, I've been looking at your profile and found out that your passion is soccer. Now, I understand soccer coming from a South African environment. I think that's football, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's football. It's, it's football where, where I come from, but I know yeah. that some people say soccer, yeah, but it, 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 yeah. it is really football. I grew <laughs> up with it being called soccer, and in Australia, we don't call it football because we have far too many other football codes. I know, I know. My, my question actually is, is about football or soccer, and, and my observation, having been a coach and I, I, play, I play hockey, is that often the leader of a team is not the best player, but the best motivator. And I think the corporate world could learn a lot from sport that sometimes there's an acknowledgement by the leader that they're not the best player and they're better people to execute the role. And why do we kind of admire these sports heroes who, who show that skill, but in the workplace we refuse to put that in? 
Well, when you look into, and we have a great example, when you see that suddenly Liverpool won the Premier League in the UK and they definitely didn't have the most expensive players, they definitely didn't have the best environment, they be- definitely didn't have a, have a, had, had the best starting situation and they also had a German manager, which means a full season with no humour. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> so... <laughs> Still, they won the Premier League by a massive advantage. I think at the end they had 99 points or something. So the, the Jurgen Klopp, as, an, as a manager, really did very well. He did something which people always appreciate when they, for example, book a motivational speaker for the annual event. And then you have a football coach who tells you it's really important that you have a diverse team and that you give people chances and that you develop your own people. And then they all give them a standing ovation and they all love it. And they say, we will stick to that principle. Four weeks later, you look into the C-suite where they all are. And I don't want to talk down on a certain group, but when you look into it, the usual C-suit, you have um, white men, normally of the same age, coming from the same two, three universities, from the same two or three networks, from the same two or three backgrounds, running a completely non-diverse leadership area, talking about diversity without delivering on their own promises. And then they suddenly wonder, well, why did we book this great football coach and it didn't work in our business? Well, because you didn't live what you just said. There is strong scientific evidence that you need to diversify when you want to have a successful business. And especially when you look, where do young people normally live? Where do young people normally work? And what is the life of young people? And I just published an article about that last week. The life of young people is very diverse. Due to their international ability to, to, to travel when we don't have a global pandemic, they have friends all over the world. And suddenly they enter the working world. And then they see how poor the diversity often is in many, especially very long-standing and very traditional areas of the business world. And that is what kills their creativity. That is what kills their productivity. When you simply, as a leader, say people have to blend in, that is the opposite of a diverse leadership approach. So, um, of course, there's always a debatable approach when they say, do we need quotas where we set a quota for every kind of different origin, gender or whatever else? I'm not a friend of quotas, but in Germany, we now have a law for quotas on the supervisory board, which is controlling the sea level. And we had that because sea level people were talking about having more women on the highest board for about 20 years. And after 20 years, I think the share of, of, of women on the highest level board positions were worth 3.5%. So suddenly you have a law in place and now they all complain. Well, you had 20 years time to act on it. And the worst statement then is, and that's something which I often hear from senior leaders, well, we simply do not have women who want to be on a leadership level. So first, <laughs> what you read, and then yeah. the... Yeah, I mean, the, the even worse statement is when they say, oh, in our organization, it is only about qualification, which has the sub-message, do you think women are too stupid? You basically just said that. So um, I know that diversifying a business is not easy because often these networks are connected to power, universities, politics, different positions in free enterprise. Often uh, deals are connected to giving positions to certain people. I know it is not easy and you can't change it within a month. But one of the reasons why we always love football stars um, and at the end it doesn't work that way is because we look what they do. um, We look at what they do. We understand what they do. We simply do not follow their example. And that is a major issue. And that clearly, that diversity and following up on diversity issues 
is a major key factor if you distinguish between good or bad leadership. And when we see how often people um, misbehave, and I'm not only talking about misogynistic behavior, sexism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, whatever it is, when you do not act upon these misbehaviors, people will leave your company, your organization, whatever it is. Great leadership is diverse leadership. And you have to not only talk about it and book a motivational speaker once a year, you have to deliver on your promises. Niels, I think we could talk for hours. Uh, sadly, we, we, I think we have to wrap it up. Uh, you mentioned uh, along the way that you have a leadership magazine. Uh, yeah. So um, I'm sure that our listeners would love to find out more information about that. And can you also tell us where they can connect with you? Um, you know, find you. So um, give us your contact details. Tell us about your magazine. Yeah. So when you um, like to know all the different aspects which I offer, just sign up for the expert letter. It's expert-letter.nb-networks.com. It's 100% content, ad-free guarantee website. Of course, then it's www.nb-networks.com. You find me on LinkedIn, of course. Um, just drop me an email at nb-networks.com and let's get in touch and have a chat. Fantastic. Thank you, Niels, and thank you to Lindsay Adams, my co-host. Thank you to the listeners for joining us on today's edition of the Business Excellence Podcast. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the Business Excellence Podcast. 